Hey, what's good, Ohio? I'm your host, James Hayes, and this is the What's Good, Ohio podcast, where we talk to the activists, organizers, visionaries, and good troublemakers coming together to make our state better for everyone. No exceptions. Today, I'm joined again by Sarah Rodenberg from Policy Matters, Ohio. Yo, what's good, Sarah? Hey, James. Thanks so much for having me back on here. Uh, what isn't good? Ohio is still coming off of that issue one victory, and we're going to have a great conversation today. I'm super excited about it. Uh, today, we've got PD Talley back on the show. PD is the first woman to serve as secretary treasurer of the Ohio AFL-CIO, winning elections in 2002 and 2006. Her career is organi- in organized labor began in 1980 when she worked as an office administrator for AFSCME, Ohio Council 8. She was AFSCME legislative director in Michigan from 94 until 99, when the national AFL-CIO appointed PD to the position of Ohio State Director. All the while, she has continued her work as a grassroots activist mobilizing workers and communities around local living wage ordinances, advocating for affordable prescription drugs, fighting for fair minimum wage, and protecting the rights of Ohio voters. Most recently, she led the Ohio Unity Coalition's push to defeat Issue 1, which you can hear more about on our previous episode. So let's jump right in and talk about what's good with Petey. What's good? What's good? How y'all doing? Sarah and James? (laughs) Oh, we're doing really good. Doing really good. Yeah, last night I uh, made a hearty grilled chicken salad with Felix. He was helping me out in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> so that was that was fun. I, I was telling Sarah before you got on the call, I got the recipe off of uh, Chat GPT, which is a, the robots are coming for us, but uh, it's it's quite a help in the kitchen. I'll I'll tell you that. Awesome. Uh, what, what's good with you? How have you been since the last time we talked to you? Ah, I'm getting over, getting over COVID right after the election, COVID just, my immune systems were obviously compromised and COVID said, oh, I got an opportunity here. Let me get on it. So it kind of knocked me out for about a week, but I'm recovering really nicely and I guess ready to get back at it. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that, uh, that that happened to you. I'm glad you're, you're feeling better. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've been seeing, hearing that there's like a real spike in, in COVID lately. There's been a rise, it seems. Yeah, I uh, the block. Yeah, the uh, a couple of uh, friends of mine went to a national sorority convention. I won't name the name, um, but quite a few of them in Ohio came back and tested positive. Also, I was not around them, um, but apparently there is a spike. There's something going on. Um, and even uh, another national conference. Um, that was happening. A lot of folks came back ill. So we just be on the lookout, folks. Be be very careful. Make sure you're taking your vitamin C's, building your immune system because it's coming. Well, anyway, welcome back. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we talked to you uh, recently on our last episode about the work you did to oppose issue one, but wanted to take a step back and talk to you more about the scope of your work over the last several decades here in Ohio. Uh, you're really a true labor and civil rights legend here in the state. You know, been doing this work for decades. Um, and so we wanted to talk to you some more about the lessons you've picked up along the way about where we are at as a state. Um, yeah, and just, you know, give folks a chance to hear more about the work Unity Coalition and, and also you as a person and who you are, um, how you got started doing this work, what's keeping you going. Um, so where you think we're we're at and need to go as we move from here. So, um, yeah, so let's just get started. You know, uh, where did you grow up? What was it like uh, for you kind of growing up? You know, just want to dig into how, how you got started on this journey uh, as a as an organizer, as a as a leader. Great. So I, I actually grew up where I now um, find myself um, returning to post um retirement from the labor movement, and that is Toledo, Ohio. Uh, My family um, um, has lived here all of our lives. Um, All my brothers and sisters, we were born and raised here. Um, I'm one of um, eight children. Um, One brother passed away when he he was younger, uh, when I was much younger. And so I always think of myself as one of seven, but actually I'm one of eight. I find myself right in the middle of that number um, and, um, you know, grew up very um, 
uh, average, um, sometimes below average. Um, we, you know, my dad always had a good job. He was a military guy, post-military having kids. He always found work. Um, he worked at Willis Overland, um, which is now Jeep, um, which is where most um, Black dads found employment during the uh, 50s, 60s. Um, so my dad was no different there, um, but it was still a struggle. He had a great union job, but there were seven of us to feed. And so we weren't always, you know, we didn't always have the best of things, right? You know, we wore secondhand shoes. I can remember like right now today in uh, Lucas County, Toledo, kids are going back to school today. And I remember as a kid, we each got like one new back to school outfit. And then the rest of our clothes came from secondhand stores um, um, across the city, wherever my parents and them could afford. And that's what they could afford. But, you know, we didn't think anything about it. We were happy to get that one first day of back to school outfit that was brand new. And then after that, it was, you know, whatever they could find. Um, I um, matriculated from, um, well, graduated from Woolworth High School, one of, you know, the North End um, uh, schools around town. We started out kind of living in the inner, what they call the inner city, um, central city. Um, they, uh, my parents never owned a home together. Um, we were always renting homes because when you had seven children, that was just not a priority for them. Um, it was a priority, but it was not something they could felt they could afford um, at the time. And, um, and so we grew up in the central city uh, of Toledo, uh, went to the same high school, my, uh, a grade school my mom went to um, as a young girl. And, um, and then ultimately, um, as we got older, we moved into what they call the North End of Town. North End of Town was more racially diverse um, we lived um, in the neighborhood with, um, we were in fact, when we moved into this neighborhood in the 70s, we were the only black uh, family that was in the neighborhood. Most of the other families around us were white or Hispanic. And so we, um, I think that was really good for us to kind of, you know, uh, learn um, about how, uh, how to uh, mix um, in with other folks who were not like you. And, you know, we just all kind of got along together, played together and went to school together. You know, we, they were at our house, we were at their house. And I think that really helped ground um, a lot of who I am and who I actually became, um, just get, getting that additional um, kind of uh, environment to grow up in. Um, and so I, I went to Woodward High School. Woodward High School was not some, uh, there's a, a saying in, in Toledo, once a bulldog, always a bulldog. The Scott High School bulldogs are like the high school that most Black folks go to, right? Um, I did my freshman year at Scott High School, and then we moved in North Toledo, and then it was with the polar bears, right? And so had a really good growing up, was an average student, nothing, nothing to write home about. Um, never thought about college. Uh, that was just not something that was in my psyche. It was, um, work was in my psyche. So I went to, um, I worked all through high school, starting my sophomore year and basically, you know, provided for myself, bought my own school clothes and, um, you know, did my own thing, learned how to drive, bought my own car, first car when I was, you know, right out of high school, just kind of average, um, uh, kind of getting there, but also always had a strong, very strong work ethic. And I think that comes from my dad because my mom was never, she never worked. She was a stay-at-home mom with seven kids. So she couldn't um, actually um, do the work thing, right? Um, yeah, so it was pretty good, pretty good growing up. Um, I, um, when I was a young, young girl, um, teenage girl, um, I, uh, it ended up being a single mom. Um, so I had my first kid when I was 17, uh, and my mom really helped a lot. She stepped in, helped get me through high school. Um, so I was able to graduate still on time in my class. So that was a pretty, pretty, um, unselfish thing that my mom did, um, still helping me to kind of, 
um, take the path of um, that would not be so hard for me. And that that helped a lot. Um, I didn't go to college right out of high school um, at all, but I, I did matriculate ultimately uh, from the University of Toledo much later uh, in life in my 30s. Um, and by then I had two kids um, and was married. Um, so that's kind of the young Petey tally. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I mean, even, you know, today ha being a teen mom is so incredibly <laughs> difficult with all of the other resources that we do have, which is frankly not enough still, but I can't imagine how much more uh, pressure, stigma, all of that stuff that you would have had to encounter at that time. So that's just really amazing, especially that you had the support of your mother for that. Yeah, she she did. My mother and dad ultimately separated. And so, um, but my dad was always in my life. And matter of fact, when I had my first son, he was the one that actually was in the labor room with me, not my mom. <laughs> uh, my dad was actually there. So he he was a great dad, very um and, you know, a very good example and very inspiring, you know, how uh, girls are with their dads. And when he passed away in 1996, you don't really, really realize how much of a daddy's girl you are until your dad's not there. And so I realized, oh, my God, I'm a daddy's girl. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, pretty good upbringing. And um, um, they did the best that they could do is what I'll say. So going from, you know, that as how you grew up, what were some of the turning points that got you into the work that you're doing and have been doing for now decades? Right. So um, I was um, always, like I said, I always had a job from the time I was a teenager all the way through my adult time. <laughs> Excuse me. And I was working this one job in my 20s, early 20s. And um, the uh, employer came in one day and said, hey, I got to let you go. And I was devastated. I was like, what? What's going on? I was a secretary. My skills, that, that was my background. When I was um, in the eighth grade, I took a typing class. And my mother brought me a typewriter for Christmas that year. And so I always, throughout high school, I kind of leaned in to the business office um, uh, employment kind of angle. Um, and so I learned how to type, took shorthand, did all of that stuff, and always found office-type jobs. Um, when I got laid off in 1980, early 1980, I went to the uh, employment office, and the, um, the, uh, the uh, um, representative found a position for me at Sears and Roebuck. And I, uh, and, and, and I had the card in my hand. I was getting ready to leave the office. And he said, well, wait a minute. Something just came on my screen. And it's a job at the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, which is AFSCME. Um, and it's for an office secretary. He said, I think you'd be great for that. And um, I was like, well, what is that? He said, it's a union. And I was like, ah, okay, what, uh, you know, if you think I'll be good, I'm, I'm going to take it. So with card in hand, he took the Sears and Robot card from me, gave me the AFSCME card, and off I went to, um, to the AFSCME interview that he had actually set up. He said, you need to go there today. Um, so I left there, went over to the office and had my resume in hand and met with the re uh, regional director, a guy by the name of Chuck Hendricks. Uh, he was a union guy. Oh my gosh. He represented public employees in the, in the city of Toledo uh, like no other. He was a legend um, back in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. And this is before public employees had the right to strike. And Chuck would get some of the be better contracts for those employees, even before they would even, um, before we had the right to um, publicly recognize public employees in the state. And he interviewed me. And one of the, um, one of the references I had on my application was um, a, a young ma a man by the name of Bill Harris, who was a, a, at the same church that I attended. 
And he, Chuck went on during the whole interview. It wasn't really about me at the interview. It was about the fact that he knew Bill Harris's stepdad. Bill Harris's stepdad was the late Casey Jones, state representative of uh, state uh, of House represented House District 45. At the time, he was one of a few blacks who were in the legislature at the time. And Chuck knew him and worked his union work to help get Casey Jones elected state representative. So the whole interview was about the work that this union did to get the state representative whose whose stepson happened to be my reference point. And it was almost as if uh, because Chuck knew that he felt some kind of connection to me um, in that way. And he immediately hired me on the spot. So I went to work for AFSCME Ohio Council 8 in the 1980s. In 1980, I was 23 years old at the time, and he hired me as the office secretary. It was there that I learned about all of the good things that unions do, not just representing their workers, but I also learned how they advocate for the election of policymakers to make good policy for the members that they represent. And that was really the beginning of my foray into um, a, a space that I was ultimately able to find my voice and to find my passion around advocacy and organizing and mobilizing for um, around electoral spaces. Because even though I was a secretary, um, it was usually the staff representatives that got to interact um, with the political programs that the union was involved in. It was usually a staff representative, not a secretary, that was out there doing um, the kinds of things and, and, and meeting up with other unions and building the solidarity of workers around issues and causes and things that would improve the lives of workers at that time. But I was a good observer. Um, I was like a sponge. I soaked in everything that I was witnessing, that my eyes were witnessing. And even at times they would ask, um, who would like to volunteer to go and pass out leaflets to workers um, to tell them about you know, the union's um, um, endorsed candidate? And I would always, you know, after work, I would always uh, volunteer to step into those spaces to either go pass out materials or get on a phone bank and make calls to union members about upcoming elections and things of that nature. And I realized it was something that I felt really excited to do and, and, and was excited to be a part of. Um, even got my mom and my family members involved as well, because they were, you know, they, they're always looking for any volunteers. It doesn't matter where the volunteers come from, right? So my mom would go and she'd be a volunteer on the phone bank. And I, you know, I would, and my brothers then would come down when this, this is when elections were held on one day, not 28 days, right? A lot of folks don't remember. We used to have elections on one day in the state of Ohio. And, and so we would come and on uh, election day, we do get out the vote on election day to turn out the vote. And my brothers would come and help and everybody in my family um, would come and help to turn out the votes alongside um, the AFSCME family um, and do work in that way. Um, and it was really, really good and fun and everything. And then I had the ultimate opportunity. Uh, AFSCME had endorsed in the 1982 um, election for Congress, they had endorsed a newcomer by the name of uh, Marcy Captor, right? Um, and so AFSCME, uh, Marcy Captor was AFSCME's endorsed candidate to unseat a Republican who happened to get into the office on a fluke. Um, the, the former congressperson for this district was Ludlow Ashley. He had been a longtime Democrat, held the seat for a number of years, and um, through uh, some um, scandal that happened in Congress that year, he got defeated by a one-time Republican by the name, I think it was Ed Weber. Um, and so um, the union knew that that seat belonged in the hands of a Democrat, not a Republican. And they fought um, and looked and found and recruited um, Marcy Captain to run for the seat. 
And Marcy Kaptur was the candidate in 1982 and the union was all in to make sure that she got elected to office. And for me, it meant a lot because Marcy Kaptur was looking for someone to run her central city operation. Um, she needed volunteers to go into the central city and help get her name out there to get her known um, in the central city of Ohio, of, of Toledo rather, of District 9, um, if you will. And um, I was the only African-American that was working in the office at the time, even though I was a secretary treasurer. So I was like, I know the central city. Um, and so my boss, uh, Chuck, allowed for me to have time throughout, um, if I, as long as I did my office work, to go and help um, their candidate set up Central City and do whatever it took to get her out there. And so I had the unique opportunity at that time in 1983 to go over and meet up with um, Marcy Captor's campaign and uh, some of the um, um, inner city political operatives, if you will. They were ward chairs and um, precinct committee people um, who were working um, in those wards and, 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 and precincts that we still target today in the Unity Coalition um, to help get Marcy Kaptur elected. I had the opportunity to meet Shirley Chisholm. She brought Shirley Chisholm in for her, uh, her campaign. I got a chance to meet her at the time. And I was just at the time in 1982, I'm not, I'm barely 25, right? And so that, that experience of itself is really kind of what pushed me even further into realizing the significance of making sure that we are mobilizing um, all aspects of the electorate um, to, to make sure that their voice is heard um, and make sure that they're uh, a part of our, um, our democracy and, and the makeup of the progressive space. And as, as you all know, uh, Marcy is now the longest serving uh, probably woman in Congress. I, I would dare say almost the longest living person that is, has been in Congress. Um, and I had the opportunity to help um, run her very first election when she got there. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that is in amazingly cool. And it's just so interesting to, like I'm picturing, you know, you handing out flyers and thinking about the fact that we would never today hand out a flyer that didn't have a website on it and the fact that you weren't you were handing out flyers that didn't have you know like oh go here to learn more like the how much information you needed to be able to transmit in those one-on-one -on -one interactions to generate you know people to act to action is just really amazing to think about how different that landscape is it was it was completely different sarah at the time you're right no phone you know we you know <laughs> we were calling from pay phones you know when we are out even on election day trying to look at when the numbers are coming in you don't you don't pick up your pay phone and call that back into headquarters you go find a, a, a phone in fact you get people um, when they leave that morning and they're assigned to a precinct or a polling location to pull the numbers at what nine o'clock two o'clock whatever you give them a stack of quarters um, so that they can actually call back <laughs> to let you know how the turnout is coming. So things were completely, uh, completely different, even how we do get out the vote work uh, on election day. Uh, just pretty amazing. And um, and and yet and yet we were able to do that work effectively. And like I said, you know, in that particular campaign back in the eighties, when um, when Marcy won her campaign, and then ultimately city council people that the union endorsed. You know, we worked on their campaigns. You know, um, after um, uh, uh, Brother Casey Jones um, passed away, I think it was. Um, Jack Ford, who had his seat next um, next up, just working on those various campaigns really helped to shape um, my um, experience and um, made me more of a professional um, organizer and mobilizer. I had no idea there was such a thing though, because uh, when I went to college, I took political science. Um, 
and, and my my um, major is in political science and communication. And I went really to college to be more on the com uh, communication side of things because uh, I was working um, actually one one little small um, piece that I left out of my career. I actually was a publisher. I published a, a local um, monthly uh, newspaper here in the Toledo area called the City Scribe. Um, <laughs> And I got to um, interview um, people like um, Mayor um, Donna uh, Donna uh, Donna Douglas. Uh, she, uh, I'm sorry, Donna Owens, who was the mayor at the time. I didn't, in, I didn't interview her. I interviewed her spouse, um, and so I did an article on the spouses of people who were in the limelight in the city of Toledo. So I interviewed the mayor's spouse. Um, Baldemar Velasquez, who is a uh, a giant of a labor leader in the Hispanic community, I interviewed his spouse, um, and um, it was pretty cool. So I did that for about six months. Um, did the city scribe um, thing for about six months, leaning into my communications. But when I took my political science class at the university, I was like, oh. I went to my advisor. I said, I got to change my major. I got to change my focus. He said, what do you mean change? He said, you're, you know, you got like, you know, 25% of the way to your communications major. You don't want to change because <laughs> then you'll be in college forever. He said, why don't you add two? So I ended up dual majoring, but leaned more into my political science side because that seemed to fit more of what would uh in the in the uh occupation that I was in with the union that seemed to fit better um into that into that space and so um we did some you know uh we actually ended up graduating in 1994 but for the 10, 10 or 15 years or so working at AFSCME as the office secretary and having the opportunity to do this political organizing work with the members and with the community um, and it was the community that was a stronger pull for me, because when those people came out in 1980 and voted for Mercy Captor, and then ultimately we continued to have a relationship um, with that community um, to get them to lean into their power around political um, candidates. It was a very significant time. They called the six, the five wards and precincts that we worked in in Central City called them the big six. There were six of them um, at the time. And you won or lost in the city of Toledo, depending on what the big six, how they performed. And so as long as they were coming out and voting, candidates knew that they had to kind of make the appeal to those, um, to those six wards and precincts. And what's really interesting about um, the big six is that the work that we do in Toledo today, the work that we just did Tuesday, um, August 8th for August 8th, it is those, um, well, now there are five of them because they've consolidated and kind of moved them around a little bit. Now they're the big five. Those big five um, wards and precincts are the ones that we continue to focus on to make sure that they turn out and vote. Because while they were vibrant in the 80s, We've seen the a decline in their performance over time. And so we know that that's an area of concentration that we absolutely have to have um, in every election cycle in order for us to um, you know, get the kind of public policy um, that we want to see. And so um, we did that work throughout the 80s and in the 90s, um, we, we, we hooked up with an organization called Project Vote. Um, Project Vote was an organization that was supported by the unions. Again, the unions have been just really remarkable in terms of um, making sure that they are looking out first and foremost for the interests of their members, but they also were smart enough to realize that just, um, um, uh, just supporting their members alone is not enough um, in the progressive space to get the kind of public policy that they need to make for strong worker rights that they need to also pair up with others in the community, whether it's women's right, you know, reproductive groups or, um, you know, members of the uh, black community who often support the kind of policies that unions want to see in order to have strong worker rights or uh, any host of things. And so unions um, were supportive of this organization called Project Vote who wanted to do 
voter registration in the 90s. Um, and they wanted to do it in a big way, kind of like the kind of the kind of bang that we're looking for today, right, James? They wanted to do it in a big way. So Project Vote was the vehicle um, that they were using at the time. And again, um, I was asked to step forward out of my secretarial uh, role um, and to help um, do some voter registration in the big six of Toledo, Ohio in the 1990s. We registered over 7,000 new voters from July to September. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and got those voters, those brand new voters um, in, in the area to actually go out and vote in the 1990s. Um, during the 1992 uh, season, this is when Bill Clinton was the candidate. Of course, the union was supporting Bill Clinton and, you know, they needed this like infusion. Right. Yeah. They needed the infusion of, you know, more uh, voters other than in addition to the union voters. And so that was a way to, to kind of help get there. Right. Register more black voters, get those black voters to turn out. And of course, you know, we, we, we did that. So we did the voter registration under the umbrella of Project Vote. And then later on, um, right after the close of registration, again, registration of voting still only happens on one day in Ohio, 1992. Um, <clears throat> then we turned our attention to how do we get these voters out to vote, to come out and vote in the presidential election of 1992. And that was a great time for me again, because then in that cycle, we had the opportunity to go back to many of those voters that I learned about in 1980 and to many of those communities and actually go back and walk those neighborhoods again. And again, Sarah, this is still before cell phones, <laughs> still before the internet. <laughs> so we're out there again, doing it again, you know, just going and having conversation, the one-on-one -on -one conversations with voters, creating the hype in the community, dropping off literature, hanging literature on everybody, you know, making sure everybody knows that the election is happening and that their, uh, their involvement in the election was important. Um, and we got an opportunity to work that entire campaign and um, I actually, at that point, was um, a leader. Uh, I was appointed as the coordinator of um, what they called at the time Operation Big Vote, Operation Big Vote. And it was a, a, associated to the organization that I humbly uh, lead now, the state affiliate of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. This was their program in 1992 that I had an opportunity to coordinate and now I'm the state co the, the state affiliate director of all of that. So I think I've kind of come full circle. Um, but Operation Big Vote helped to turn out the voters that were needed in 1992 to help Bill Clinton win Ohio um, that ultimately sent him to the White House. And that, that, was, that was the first year I got a chance to attend my very first inauguration um, after the campaign was over with. Um, Thanks to my union again, um, in part, um, helping to um, helping to get all of the coordinators who were running Operation Big Votes all across this country um, to um, to help turn out the vote for Bill Clinton in the nineties. No, that's 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 amazing. Yeah, just thinking about how far we've come since that time, and yeah, there's there's just so many questions I'd love to follow up on. Um, uh, that uh, are coming to me as, as I'm just listening to you talk. But I'm wondering, you know, I, so you could reflect a little bit more and sort of like what the journey for you was like coming, doing all this work. And then in 2002, you become the secretary general of the AFL-CIO. And I know for the next couple of years and are helping lead uh, the, the labor movement in Ohio. Uh, um, you know, in 2006, labor really drove the charge to raise the minimum wage here. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of progress made. So I was wondering, coming from a tw being a 23-year-old uh, young mother, um, taking a job as a secretary in AFSCME uh, at the local level, how did you end up uh, becoming the secretary general in 2002? 
Um, what was that journey like as a black woman? Or secretary, what, what's the title? Secretary of Treasury. Secretary General. Secretary of Treasury. I like general too. <laughs> I think that's like an army term or something. Yeah. Like, what, what is that? Where does that come from? Secretary of Treasury. Secretary of Treasury. Yeah. Right. So in 92, after the, the 92 election, my I caught the attention of my national union, right? Because I'm working local, right? Everything's local, you know, and, you know, when you're at home local, you know, people see you, but they don't see you, right? But the nationals saw me. It's like, who is that person doing all that work, great work in Ohio? And in 1994, my national union hired me um, out of the secretary pool and propelled me to become the political and um, um, legislative director of their Michigan operation. So I left Ohio in 1994 after I matriculated from the University of Toledo. Um, and I went to Michigan and worked for five years for my national union, um, doing po po more political work with the, directly with the unions. Now I'm a staff person. I'm not a secretary anymore. I'm, I'm like big baller staff person, right? As the uh, political and legislative director of the AS American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees working for the National Union. Um, and they hired me to do their political work for five years um, in Michigan. And we did more of the same. We mobilized our members around public policy, uh, uh, around elections. We fought public policy. Um, we were there in the state of Ohio under the, um, in the state of Michigan, I'm sorry. Um, when we were up against a really crazy odds, we had a really right-wing governor. That was the beginning of uh, you know, the right wing coming to, into their own in the 1996 era, 1994 with New Gingrich and the New Deal and all of that kind of stuff. We were uh, a governor. Um, I can't even think of his name. Enright is what I want to call him, but I know that's not right. Um, anyway, we fought that fight for five years um, uh, with uh, AFSCME International and the AFL-CIO was retooling their whole uh, operation at the time. They brought in brand new leadership in 1995 with a very intention on being more open and inclusive in the leadership of the AFL-CIO. They wanted more women. They wanted more African-Americans. They wanted more brown. They wanted all of the various uh, leadership. They wanted the leadership to more adequately reflect the membership. And so they were very, very intentional um, at that time in the 1995 under the leadership of John Sweeney had just become the president of the AFL-CIO with Rich Trumka being the secretary treasurer. And then they added a third position, Linda Chavez Thompson, who held the uh, first vice president position. So very intentional on the reflection of the leadership of the AFL-CIO. And that meant also then it would only not only be reflective at the top, but all throughout the entire AFL-CIO, which meant more um, women and people of color, um, uh, regional directors and state directors, and they had this whole thing. So I was being uh, recruited uh, by one of the regional directors to come and be a state director and run the in the field mobilization department. Um, and they recruited me in 1997, 98 to come to Ohio. Um, it didn't happen then. I remember feeling kind of mixed. I loved my AFSCME union, but I also wanted an opportunity to come back to Ohio and do some work because I was in Michigan. And Michigan was great, uh, but Ohio was my home. Um, I remember being sad. And then in, in um, 1999, uh, so they hired someone else for the Ohio spot, um, and I stayed at AFSCME for another year. And then the, the Ohio position came open again. They recruited me again to come and be the um, state director. And this time I was hired um, by John Sweeney and uh, Mary Creighton, my, 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 my sister mentor friend, to come and be the state director of field mobilization in Ohio for the AFL-CIO. It was there then I learned um, how to work with um, state federation leaders and central co labor council leaders. So I worked with, at the time, the state federation leader was a guy by the name of Bill Berger, um, the father of the current um, president of the Ohio AFL-CIO. 
um, Bill Berger um, was the president. I worked with him and his board, and we 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 were working on some things called um, diverse uh, uh, union cities, um, where we wanted to make the AFL CIOs uh, all across the state of Ohio, the central labor councils, be more again reflective of the membership and get more women, people of color, uh, young people um, into the leadership roles uh, within the AFL-CIO. And of course, during that fight in the 1990s, um, late 1990s, we were looking at uh, affordable prescription drug uh, campaign is what um, I think the AFL-CIO was working on at that time. And so I, I worked a lot with them um, and the, the then secretary, uh, treasurer of the AFL-CIO was a, a black guy by the name of Donald Day. Um, Donald Day um, uh, was a very great labor person. He came out of my union, asked me, uh, Council 8 um, at the time. And so we, you know, we had a really uh, kindred spirit. Um, he supported the work that I was trying to do. Um, it was always challenging because, you know, power concedes nothing. Um, without a demand, it's going to hold on as long as it can. And I'm in these guys' space as a young Black woman saying, you got to be more intentional about diversity. And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about, girl? Um, and, you know, but I, it was my job. I had to, I had to challenge them on what it was that the AFL-CIO was becoming, even though it was, you know, viewed, often viewed as a man's you know, federation, right? It's, this is this is about guys. It's not about the people of color you're talking about, and certainly not about women. There had never been a woman leader um, in the in the um, in the AFLs in the leadership of the Ohio AFL CIO. Um, when Don Day passed away in 1999, our union looked around, and we asked me was one of the bigger unions inside of the AFL, Ohio AFL-CO at the time. And so they had a lot of input, influence about who the who would succeed the secretary, who would succeed the secretary treasurer that had passed away. And they looked around and they and they and they came back to me and they remembered um, that I was someone from the AFSME union. Um, and but more importantly, that I had done the work, um, not just um, at the AFL-CIO level, but I had done the work within their union, right? And they wanted someone that would do the work more so than, um, they, I remember them telling me, we're not hiring you because you are a person of color. We're hiring you because we know that you can do the work and that you believe in the work that, 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 that this union stands for and that you will, you know, you won't just kind of ride the wave um, because you are, uh, this is not a diversity hire is kind of what they told me. And so I was like, okay, then I'll do it. And so they asked if I would step forward and um, fill out the term of the, of the uh, secretary treasurer. Um, and, and, and they said, it'll be huge because you'll be the first woman to do this. And, and, and there's no secretary treasurer that, that that's there that's going to kind of show you the ropes. You got to kind of chart your own course. <laughs> And so I was like, I think I can do this. And so I stepped into the position and was appointed in 19, um, and I'm sorry, 2002, after having worked at the um, Ohio, at the national AFL-CIO for three years. Now I'm in an elected position. This is the first time I've ever elected to anything. And it's nerve wracking, right? Cause I'm like, I'm not a politician. What do you mean you want me to run for office? <laughs> I'm like, I help people, other people run for office. I'm not the one that should be running for office. But I stepped into the position at any rate, becoming the first woman to hold that position. And it was, it was, it was good. It was good. Bill Berger, um, who was the president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, he was supportive. Um, even as an older white guy, he was he was he was okay. He was like, okay, let you know, let's give this a chance and see kind of how it works. I don't think she's gonna get on my nerves, but let's give this a chance. And so um, I knew that I needed to um, um, you know continue with the voice that I had already began uh, in terms of challenging the leadership around more diversity and more inclusion. And Bill, Bill Berger was very open to that. He was one 
of the first state, state federations. He and I were one of the first state federations in the nation to include in our constitution in 2002, um, the, uh, um, the representation of groups like the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists to be on the board, the A. Philip Randolph Institute to be on the board of the Ohio AFL-CIO, the Coalition of Labor Union Women to be on the board of the Ohio AFL-CIO. The National had already willed it to be so um, and had uh, given us the rules governing to make that happen. But Bill Berger was one of the first state federations to say, let's do it. And so in 2002 at the convention, when I was first um, being elected by the delegates after having been appointed for five months, um, those were the resolutions that we offered. Um, we offered and we had delegates go to the mic to get those positions into our constitution so that they could be represented on the board. And so in my book, Bill Berger's okay with me, right? Cause he understood, he did not fight. Many, many state federations continue to kind of dig in and hold the line on opening up um, the labor movement in that way. But I think it was, um, I, I'd like to think I was kind of the secret sauce because again, I had already charted a, a unprecedented path by becoming the first woman. Um, and I don't think Bill wanted to kind of test what that would look like if he kind of was trying to box me out. So we got some wins for not just myself, uh, being the first woman, but also other people of color and um, women to, to actually have a seat at the table of the Ohio AFL-CIO. Um, it, it was a good run. I don't know that I faced any kind of um, um, resistance um, be based on my agenda. Um, I mean, pretty much what I thought I wanted to try to have happen in the labor movement. I didn't get blocked out um, by um, any of the leaders at all uh, because I was um, not, didn't have a, a point to prove, just was trying to make people aware that this was not our grandfather's labor movement anymore, that there were lots of um, other um, perspectives that needed to be considered and was able to convince our board at the time um, which was mostly white men, um, that this was a way that we should be moving in. And they, and they kind of went along for the ride um, under um, you know, my leadership um, of being a woman and pushing um, to make sure it could happen. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I have, I have so many follow-up questions that come to mind. And um, you know, so it's like, it's like, I'm like, I don't even want to go forward into the, the next questions. Sarah, what were some of the follow-ups you had? The one that really sticks out to me, well, there's two really, is one that, like, that's that that's still the conversation that happens, too, in labor rights, right? It's this, like, oh, it's not a race issue. It's a class issue. It's not a gender issue. It's a class <laughs> issue. Like, all of us aren't workers who deserve labor rights, but also just how, like, it's changed a lot, but also not so much right of like yeah there's still rooms of white men that are telling women and people of color specifically women of color that like oh well we can't talk about that right now because it might turn off this sector or this um mm -hmm. and the other thing that just really sticks out to me is how important conversations have been in your entire life and career right like every major trajectory change that you described came from talking to someone or from mm -hmm. having a connection with someone and also the work you've done and came from those conversations and yeah I guess my biggest question would just be outside of that observation what other advice would you give to like young people who are getting into progressive organizing especially in Ohio Right. I, I would say this. I, I think the, the one thing that I would say, especially to young people, is that these institutions, right, are just that. And so we have to respect the history of the institution, right? Change is not something that you can force necessarily. You have to understand that you are inside an institution that has culture, that has history, 
that is hard to um uh is it's not just going to it's not flexible enough to just um make the change just like that right um and so while it is the right thing to do uh for for these institutions to be more open um to um to change that's not always it's not always even easy for like a leader who who you think has the power to to make the change to do that because that leader then has to go have a, Bill Berger had to have lots of conversations with some of those white guys on his board, right? To make sure that they understood this is not about takeover, right? So you gotta give the institution time to kind of um, flex its way through, but that doesn't mean that you, that you kind of, um, you don't write them off, but you don't necessarily have to force so much. You just gotta continue to have the conversation from your perspective until the light bulb kind of goes off. And they and then there's a, com a comfort that says, okay, this is not gonna be the takeover. I think that it is, but we at least need to hear what these young people are saying or what these women are saying or what these people of color are saying. Um, I think it's just, again, being able to relate to folks and not force so much we we do have our perspective. We do know uh, what we think is the better thing, but we have to um, kind of ease it into an institution that has been rigid for so very long. Um, and sometimes it feels like resistance, right? But um, I think change is kind of incremental. And so I would just say to young people, for sure, it it'll come, but it'll come with you all understanding that uh, with young people understanding that uh, you don't necessarily need to force people to change to your way, but that there's there's some there's some room in the fabric that you can kind of slide your issue into if you're talking um, um, and you and keep the focus on this is like all inclusive, right? Uh, I if I if this would have been like you know y'all got to change and it's not about white man anymore. It's like, okay, but we can coexist because look at you and I, Bill Berger, you and me, you know, I'm a young black woman, you're an older white guy. We can do this together. We can do this together. And so making sure those institutions know it's not about taking over, it's about really doing stuff together that can make all of our lives uh, a whole lot better. And that, and that can show up in the kind of policy changes that we need. When we fought for minimum wage in 2006 in the Ohio, um, uh, in, in Ohio, it wasn't for our members. Our members, most of the union members made more than minimum wage. So we weren't fighting for ourselves, right? But it was about making sure that the other part of the workforce that does not make minimum wage, that we are not um, playing to the, the, the floor, but we want to raise everybody up. And so, um, of course, the union movement took on a, a very strong leadership role when we fought that fight and got minimum wage increased in 2016, because it wasn't something that we were doing for our membership, because most of our members made more um, than $8 and what was it, $7.25 at the time, or whatever, whatever it was, right? And so, um, again, just making sure that we are all fighting for public policy that's going to benefit not just from our own personal perspective, but the, the, the greater good of everybody. Um, that's in the ecosystem. And I think that that's one way that we can get uh, people at least paying attention. And we don't always have to lead with our gender or our race either, right? Um, we just need to lead with our values, right? Lead with our values. And sometimes then people don't really see you, you know, they, they're not focused on the fact that you might be a, of a different race or a different gender. So again, that's another thing I think could be helpful uh, or a different age for that matter, right? Your best idea wins sort of a, sort of thing. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, no, there's, there's, a, there's a, lot, a, lot, a lot of good things in there. Yeah, when, you know, I really appreciate you sharing those lessons, especially just the knowing how, how much uh, engagement you had within labor um, and thinking about how institutions change and you know, I know I was a young, uh, a young person. I yelled at many, many, many buildings. Um, 
uh, it led many protests of you know, uh, and many people in power. Um, but there's something different about being a critic of those in power and then trying to also be in power um, and a different sort of orientation you have to have um, if you want to actually lead and take ownership of the institutions rather than just be on the outside throwing stones. So I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing that perspective because I do think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, folks younger than, I'm not necessarily one of the youth in the same way these days. Um, Though uh, when we were doing young, when we started OSA, we we, we said 18 to 35. So I'd still have a couple of years before they, before they, before they have to kick me out but um but yeah no but you know I, I feel like a lot of us uh we're you know we, we have our analysis we know what our critiques are um, but we don't have the strategy to really make those things uh policy um inside of institutions such as labor that are you know very large or um in public policy so Really appreciate you sharing that stuff. And another one, I know we're we're pushing time. I want to hopefully hopefully you can stick around for a little bit sure. uh, to to talk a little longer. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about just like the importance of labor for the black community. Um, and you know, just like I was just thinking as you were talking about how you know my my own grandfather was a, a, a steward in his his union. He was a custodian um, at the. Uh, the hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, but he was he was a jazz trumpeter. You know, that was his passion. But, you know, to sort of, you know, get some stability um after, after you know, he, he had my my mom and, and my my aunt um uh he 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 took a job um that he could provide uh for his family. And my aunt actually became a professional musician. Uh she's a cellist of the Marion Anderson String Quartet. So got to live out that that dream. But um, you know, but just the the importance of, of public sector unions for sort of providing a pathway to the middle class and to to, uh, to stability for for black folks. And I don't feel like a lot of young people, uh, my age and younger black folks, really are thinking about unions and the labor movement. You know, sort of as intimately connected to the struggle against racism, the struggle for, you know, for the black community. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about just like, I don't know, some of your reflections on the importance of the labor movement for the black community um, <laughs> and uh, some of your reflections on just like building independent, you know, building independent political power for black folks, you know, today. I think it's, go- they goes hand in hand. So I'm reminded right now of 2011, right? Um, when when Governor Kasich talked about uh, the elimination of co- uh, collective bargaining for uh, public sector workers, right? When when you look at the first view of that law that was passed, it looks race neutral, right? Looks like okay, we're going after we're just going to eliminate public sector, you know, collective bargaining for public sector workers. Mm-hmm. So nothing, you know, there's nothing racial about that, right? And so, and so, and so immediately the campaign came out and said, oh, wait a minute, you're attacking um, teachers and nurses and police and firefighters, right? And so Blacks in those professions um, as a whole, just in those four professions, which was what you were, what the campaign wanted us to believe was under attack. We're not overly represented in those those professions at all, right? So it looks race neutral. But we started to look at, okay, let's look at where Blacks are in public sector, right? And what we learned uh, in 2011 was Black workers were like 20% of the workforce in the state of Ohio. I'm like, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's proportionate, right? That's on our people, right? Because whether or not you um, were a public sector worker, you knew somebody that worked in county government or city government or, um, you know, worked at, in a, 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 a public hospital or whatever. All of those things were under attack. Um, but we didn't think about it when that law first kind of came out, that this was something that we needed to exercise our political power to try to beat back, right? And the campaign was not necessarily thinking about it in that way. But of course, me, you know, the way I, my orientation 
It's like, wait a minute, y'all. If we because one of the things that we knew, James, in 2011, it was going to be hard um, with the way the campaign was structuring um, the message frame about police police officers in particular in 2011. It's going to be hard for black folks to go out and, and fight for or vote for the rights for police officers when in fact, you know, there's this other relationship, other kind of relationship that black folks are having with police officers in their everyday life, right? Um, so to, to go out and try to fight for them on a value system like making sure that they can have the right to collective bargaining, it was going to be a leap for us to get there. So once we found out that, that the nuance of the campaign and that 20% in Ohio, not necessarily in other states, that that's an overrepresentation of Black people in, in one particular sector of employment, right? Even more than our population, we're only 13% of the population in Ohio. And here we are 20%, rep almost twice as much represented in just government, uh, which is under attack. And so once we nuance the message around that particular issue, then we were able to kind of get in there and use our political power right? Uh, muster up enough of our political power to go in and fight that fight based on um, uh, a nuance of, uh, of, of our race um, and what this would do to impact the lives of so many people that we knew worked in public sector. Because even if you didn't work in public sector, right, you had, um, it's those public sector jobs that did help propel many Blacks into middle class. And even if you didn't get in there, you were still reliant upon someone who did have a public sector job to kind of help the rest of the family out, right? And so it's those kinds of things that we have to look for when, we, when we're talking about policy um, that, is, that, that, that directly connects to whether or not we are participating in the electoral process, whether we're electing or not going out and electing people who um, will um, make sure that the policies that they are espousing are not necessarily impacting us um, in a way. In that election year, Black people, when you looked at the post-election analysis of, 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 um, of uh, Senate Bill 5, um, Black people voted in a higher percentage to, to reject Issue 5 uh, Senate Bill 5 than union members did, right? I mean, so, they, you know, there's there are these connections that we have to the labor movement um, in terms of our political engagement that can impact and improve our lives. You know, we have to be fighting, not, not just fighting for labor rights because it's the right thing to do, but because it is directly, directly tied to our, uh, many of the livelihoods of Black people, right? And, and while most Black folks don't necessarily think, like you said, your aunt was a union member too, but she pursued her jazz career, most folks don't get up, most Black folks don't get up in the morning and think about, oh, I'm a union member, right? They get up and think about a whole host of other things. And it is up to the institution of labor. It's up to your organization, James, Sarah, uh, Ben, um, uh, with Policy Matters. It's, up to my organization to make those connections because people on them, of themselves are not always making that connection. Once you make the connection though, most black folks and black voters will do the right thing like what they did on um, this last election. Uh, we, we went out, we made sure folks knew there was an election. We made sure that they understood that what uh, issue one was going to do was limit their ability, and then they got it, right? And so it's up to all of us to always be making those kinds of nuanced connections to the broadest base that we possibly can. That's why we can't just stop with union women, uh, union members, or we can't just stop with women on reproductive issues, or we can't just stop with LBGT folks on their issues. We got to make the broadest connection that we can so that all of us then can put our cards on the table and start winning some good public policy in the state of Ohio. And if we can continue to do that, 
after this win that we had on Tuesday, that hopefully will continue to take us even further, which is why I'm happy to be in the space as the CEO of the Ohio Unity Coalition to do our part as it relates to people of color, um, Black folks mobilizing to make sure that we can all get to the collective win that we need. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Petey, for joining us. I think that's a great place to start to wrap to wrap up the conversation today. Um, and thank you so much for sharing just uh, so many stories from your life growing up um, in Toledo. Um, also, you know, coming of age uh, as a young mother and really diving into the labor movement. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. I've known you for years and I've learned just a lot about you. Um, in this conversation and um, your perspective on things. So I just really appreciate you joining us today. Um, yeah. Thank yeah, you. I probably could have had this conversation for another four hours. I just <laughs> such so much amazing information, so much uh, context for where we are now and what we are dealing with in Ohio. And it was just really wonderful getting to know you and your work. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, James. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share. Um, and I can't wait to um, hear others, uh, other folks' story, because I think we all have one to tell, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, you know, with the first episode, we, we talked about Repro and the Ballot Initiative. And the second episode, we talked with you and also Ray and Kyle about the, uh, the fight against issue one this summer. Um, but we, we definitely want to have some you know, episodes where we just talk with some of the leaders of, uh, you know, who are doing the work in Ohio, who've been doing the work so that people who are, are, are here in state or who might have moved uh, living elsewhere now can really get to know um, the folks who are day in, day out doing the work. Because so often, you know, we're paying attention to like just politicians and stuff like that, um, you know, but like every single day, there are folks who, who, who are the real leaders um, who are building types of organizations that are, um, you know, that, that, that are really going to make Ohio uh, the Ohio that we need it to be. So thanks for joining. And uh, yeah, we definitely will have some more folks on in the future, hopefully, uh, to, to share their stories. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Petey. Visit whatsgoodohio.com for show notes and links to the organizations represented on today's show. And subscribe to What's Good Ohio wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next time to keep talking about what's good here in Ohio.